0: through the Gospels, Acts, Romans, you'll find 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 1 through 22. This is where our sermon will come from. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul instructs the Corinthians saying, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and twenty-three thousand fell in a single day. We must not put to Christ put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as examples, but they are written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. I invite you to go, to the Lord, in prayer as we ask Him to open up our eyes to see what He has from the Word. Lord, please give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive as we open up Your Word and and really consider what it means to flee idolatry and truly worship. And as that relates specifically, Lord, to to baptism and the Lord's Supper, help us have greater understanding so that we may worship you more rightly and truly. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I don't know about you, but when I think of ceremonies or rituals, uh, synonymous with those terms, I typically think of boring, dry, lifeless, stiff, unnecessary, over-the-top, we think about those things, right? We don't really like to go to them. And uh, I think of just recently, we've just come out of that season of ceremony. You know what I'm talking about, graduation season, where where high schoolers, college grads, and those of other educational accomplishments, they, they, they send you those invitations uh, to the graduation ceremony that you're like, oh, I will not in attendance, but I will gladly go to the festivities afterwards, right? Uh, that's because we 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 typically don't enjoy the ceremony. However, when done right, and particularly I think when we understand the significance of the ceremony, it becomes an important aspect to our lives. I mean, let's think about it. those of you who we had several high school graduates who just graduated. Uh, if you understand the significance of it, and maybe your parents more so than you, they appreciate the ceremony and all the circumstance and all the, the apparel. And what occurs at these events, it's rather unique, isn't it? It's not what goes on every day. It's, it's meant to be distinct. It's meant to be elevated. It's meant to communicate, this is a big deal. And so everything that occurs at, say, a graduation ceremony is a little weird, if you will. Everyone's wearing these robes, and they got these funny little square hats that they put on their head. Um, there is uh, repeating or singing of the institution's motto or their, their, their school song. The faculty are, are usually wearing just as funny clothing, and they are sitting up top, often looking down upon those students who are sitting there waiting to receive their diploma. The colors of the event identify the significance of the institution. The speeches are, are given to exhort and to pass down a, a, a trust or a responsibility to those who are receiving uh, that degree. And family are present, and they're watching as witnesses to this significant event in their loved one's life. We could say something very similar about the wedding ceremony as well. That's another ceremony that we participate in, and it might be one of those you'd rather go to the party afterwards than to the actual event, right? (laughs) I got an amen from somebody. But you would... You would understand there's pomp and there's circumstance. The, the dress has symbolism and it communicates something. It's meant to, to communicate purity of the bride. There, there's rings that are, that are given and vows that are, are made and they represent solidarity and a union that is about to take place. There's a charge given to pass down responsibility, if you will. And then there's witnesses and they're there for accountability. Now there's much more to be said. I'm not trying to give an exposition about all the ceremonies in our life. But what I want you to see, at least make a connection with, is that ceremonies are rituals, the rituals of observance which visualize the significance of a uh, a momentous momentous event. I need to work on that word. (laughs) Valerie thought that was funny. (laughs) They're... There are rituals that help us visualize the significance, the gravity of the event taking place. To say that you got married is a good thing, but it's a quite a different thing to experience the whole ceremony. To say you graduated is one thing, but to, to experience the ceremony is, is quite another It helps us visualize. In other words, ceremonies help us not only see, but feel the gravity of the event taking place if you participate. Everything in the ceremony has significance, but the significance is not found, say, in the gown. It's not found in the ring itself. It's the significance is in what the things are pointing to, the the whole ceremony is pointing to the degree being confirmed, or, or the rings are pointing to the, to the commitment of marriage being made. Everything is pointing to something greater. And where I want to encourage you, and maybe to connect the dots a little bit more, is that the same is true in the ceremonies of baptism and the Lord's Supper. God has given the church rituals, if you will, ceremonies to help us see and feel the gravity of the salvation wrought for us by his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. It's quite one thing to say, yeah, I'll follow Jesus. It's quite another thing to be baptized in the name of Jesus. It's one thing to say, oh, I follow Jesus every day. It's quite another thing to show up here every Lord's Day. There's a ceremony that forces out the practice of your faith and forces you not only to see as you look at one another, but also to feel the gravity of what God has done for us. Every element has symbolic significance because of not the things that are before us, if we were taking the Lord's Supper today, or, or the water. I can't point behind me now, but in a month I will be able to. Everything has significance, not in and of itself, but in the person to whom it points. But if we do not understand the significance of the ceremony and we do not participate in it, brothers and sisters, here's what I'd offer to you. We will not only lose out on sharing in the benefits that the ceremony conveys, But in this case, we'll be in direct disobedience to our Lord who commanded us to make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and to do this in remembrance of me. These aren't just options. They're commands, but commands to help us see and experience what Christ has done for us on the cross. So with these commands of view, I want us to grow in our understanding of the ceremonies of baptism and the Lord's Supper. This continues us in our, our worship series. And these are things that I would venture to guess that most of us have not given much thought to. We don't see the significance of them. But they're very significant, and they're very significant for us as we approach God in worship, And so I want us to grow in our understanding of these things so that you and I, when we worship and when we participate in them, whether we're, we're being baptized or witnessing a baptism or whether we're here observing the Lord's Supper, that we may behold the beauty and splendor of Christ and our faith will be made visible we well, behold the beauty and splendor of Christ, and our faith is visible when we participate in those things. And so, to that end, I want us to see the ordinance, see that the ordinances visualize three things. Number one, our identification with Christ. Two, our preservation with Christ. And three, our exaltation of Christ. Paul's writing here to the Corinthians. Because they have yet to connect the dots, if you will, uh, of how their newfound faith in Christ, being labeled now saints in the church of Corinth, actually has an impact to their daily lives. They have a disconnect. They think that they can come, in this case, to the table of the Lord, but then on the weekdays they can live completely just like they were before. That's what he's getting at when he talks about the table of demons and the table of of the Lord, and Paul addresses numerous issues. If you're familiar with the church in Corinth, numerous issues of their life that that does not align with their newfound faith in Christ. And one of these issues is the participation in the pagan temple, pagan temple ceremonies, and the meals. This was we don't really get this context, uh, but the pagan temples were central to the life of the Greco-Roman world this was this was connected to your business, this was connected to your social life. it was at the center of the community. Therefore to have be a part of the community was was to go to the temple and share in the meal. This is what you do. And Paul's saying in this case, this is not what you do. It's going to change what has happened in your life and and he appeals to them to see that this, participation in the temple is actually idolatry, and it will result in the judgment of God upon them. Look, look in verse 5 of chapter 10. He says this, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. He's talking about Israel there, but we're going to see how that connects. Look at verse 9. We must not put our put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Look at verse 12. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Looking at Paul's instruction more positively, what's he doing? He's calling them to worship. That's what he's doing. He's rebuking them. This, As we saw last week, he's correcting. But if we were to flip this in the, the positive, flee idolatry. What does that look like? Worship God rightly. That's what he's saying. You aren't worshiping rightly, Corinthians. You don't see how what you're doing is actually idolatry. And he's calling them to true worship. And he does so by appealing God to their common understanding, their common theology of the baptism and Lord's Supper. That's what he's doing. He's making an argument based on what they believe and were taught about these two things. And he's calling them to worship. And I, I don't want to kind of pull that out for us this morning. I'm not so much going to bring a, a word of rebuke on idolatry, but I'm I'm wanting us to see what, what was the assumption here about the the place of baptism in the Lord's Supper and life of the church. Because I think that many of us, we, we've not given much thought to it. And in some cases, we, we have come to wrong conclusions about it. We've almost made it of no significance whatsoever out of fear of becoming something we don't want to be. And so look at what Paul says in verses 1 and 4. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Here's what Paul's doing here. He's wanting to situate the temptation and danger that the Corinthians are in and that they're facing. He wants to show them that Israel faced similar temptations, that what you are experiencing is not uncommon. That's a good word for many of us. At Verse, verse 13, no temptation is overtaking you. That is not common to man. Many of us think, no, 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 no one's ever dealt with my temptation. No one's ever else faced my problem. And he says, actually, if you'll just read the Old Testament, you will see your problem right there. And you can see how they fell into the very exact same thing. Now, now it might not be the exact same time, exact same thing, but analogously, you can see connections that actually we all struggle with the exact same issues. We just give them new names. And so Paul is looking back in the history of Israel and he's basically saying, hey guys, I want you to know that Israel, though they, they didn't have baptism in the Lord's Supper, they experienced very similar things and that did not allow them to just live as they wish. And he's making a connection here. He wants to show them that as those upon whom the end of the ages have come, in other words, you, you're the ones who are now receiving the fulfillment of Israel's history, that just as Israel did not escape judgment as they lived in idolatry and sin, though they too had a form of baptism in the Lord's Supper, neither will you escape judgment if you live in sin and idolatry. That's what he's, That's basically the point of this passage. And so we glean from Paul's ex- exhortation the significance and gravity of the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's Supper. And so for starters, we see what I want us to see is that they identify us with Christ. Do we not have the points up there? So those up? There? Oh, there we go. All right. Sorry. They identify us with Christ. Let's consider baptism for a moment. Look in verse 2. Notice he says, they were all baptized into Moses. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud, and in the sea. Now, what's he referring to here? If if you're familiar with your your Old Testament Bible stories, he's talking about the Exodus, isn't he? He's talking about how Moses led Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and and what took place? There There was a cloud, right? A cloud that, during the day, led them by day, and at night turned to a pillar of fire and protected them, led them, guided them. And it led them to the Red Sea, and then they went through the waters and came out on the other side. And that kind of consummated their deliverance from Egypt, because at that point, their enemies were destroyed. Paul says all these things were pointing to greater realities, which is true in your life. Paul says that their experience of being covered by the cloud and passing through the Red Sea was like a baptism. And this immersion, if you will, identified them with Moses, the cloud, and the sea. Now, what do these things re- represent? Well, the cloud represented God's presence and his protection. It's interesting when Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration reveals himself, there's a cloud. In a parallel passage is at Jesus' baptism, what, what, who is hovering above him? The Spirit. And he's saying they they had God's presence hovering above them in accordance with their baptism. And he's talking about here helping us make a connection with the Holy Spirit. The sea represented God's redemption. The path out of Egypt for us is the path out of death. And Moses was their mediator and leader showing them the way to live with God. Listen to Him. That's what God says. Because He communes with me face to face. And He communicates to you my word. And if you heed His word, you will live. Well, in the same way, our baptism represents the indwelling presence of the Spirit. And our baptism into the Spirit and our washing away of sin and redemption and our identification with Christ who is the new and greater Moses, which we've been seeing in the book of Matthew. This is what Paul says in Romans 6. Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ, do you hear that language, were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that. Why were we baptized into Christ's death? Why were we identified with him? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall surely be united with Him in a resurrection like His. What is Paul saying? Baptism has significance. It's your identification, your union with Christ. It represents it. It shows it. It visualizes it. Christian baptism visualizes the deeper spiritual realities of our union with Christ based on faith. The things I can't see, right? I can't see my union with Christ. I can't visualize that. But God has given us ceremony to feel, see, and experience association so that we can have some categories. One of the things I pray for my children, especially when they're young they're like Luke and Lily's age where they're they're not able to comprehend these things, but that the Lord would give them categories of understanding my goodness to them as a father so that when I tell them about the Heavenly Father, they have good associations. God has given us things that when done rightly, will rightly tell us about him. That's why we want to make sure our theology is good. Because if it's off, we'll we'll have bad ideas about who God is. So baptism is, get this, it's actually the initiation rite of membership into Christ's body, the church. Baptism is the means by which we identify with Christ, His death and resurrection, and become part of Him and His body. That's why if if you've joined this church, and some of you hadn't been baptized before you came here, We had you be baptized. Because these things are inseparable. Baptism is the outward expression of not only your faith in Christ, but your identification with His people. And this occurs, notice it's once. Israel didn't go back in and out through the Red Sea. Right? I know some of us, we have a story of multiple baptisms, but that's because we're trying to do it right and we realize, hey, I I want to be baptized as a profession of my faith. But it's an initiation, right? It's done once. And it's particularly at the time of redemption. It occurs in this case when you repent and believe. Why is that? Because it's only when you actually believe that you're identified with Christ and his people. This is a visualization of an internal reality that has occurred. That's why we don't baptize babies. That's why Jesus gives the command to make disciples baptizing them. Right? This is the first step. This is the initiation rite. It's a ceremony that Jesus institutes in the church that formalizes church membership. It really is. They're, They're connected. That's why we don't just do it individually. I don't just go baptize my kids in the tub or in the river all by myself. No, we do it as a church because it's an ordinance of the church. Let's think about Lord's Supper here for a moment. Look in verses 4 and 5. He makes an analogy. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they, or excuse me, verse 3. All ate the same spiritual food, verse 4, and all drank the same spiritual drink. Israel similarly had a spiritual meal and drink while they were wandering in the wilderness. Now, if you're, if you're understanding these historical analogies, we're like Israel wandering, waiting for the promised land. They're in the same boat. Many temptations are out there. Many serpents are out there nipping at their heels. And God gave them food and drink which he sent from heaven. And the drink came out of a rock. And he notes that this is a supernatural rock. There was a a tradition amongst Israel that the rock moved around and followed Israel throughout the wilderness, continually supplying the drink that they needed. Now whether it was the rock physically moving or the the flowing water that started at that source followed them, it's really not the point. The point is, is that that God is the one by whom the source that is sustaining the life of Israel through a drink. Often the rock in Israel was, was or Yahweh associated himself as a rock. We actually read it in Psalm 95 as Pastor Chris led us there, that Yahweh is our rock. Well, Paul in the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the rock. That Jesus is the, the one true God and the one who supplied Israel's daily sustenance and needs. Now Paul makes the connection if you go over to verses 16 and 17. Look at what he says. The cup of blessing. He's talking about the drink and the Lord's Supper. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? He says when you take the Lord's Supper, there is a real relationship going on. There's a real sharing. It's that word. Many of you know it. Koinonia. Fellowship. Right there. When you are, are taking the Lord's Supper, we call it communion, you're communing with Christ. That's what he's saying. There's a realness here. It's sharing in Christ, what? His death and His sacrifice for us. And partaking in the supper visualizes what is taking place as we trust Christ. Now again, the magic, the supernatural, isn't in the elements themselves, but in the ordinance and the structure by which God has given us, it is a means by which we are expressing our faith, expressing our trust, that is genuine and we can see it. That's what's going on. And so when we're taking the Lord's Supper, we, we, we take the bread, we drink the cup. What are we saying? We are saying that we're receiving Him, consuming Him, drinking Him, so that He is in us. Which represents the reality that Christ does dwell in us by His Holy Spirit. He's visualizing a spiritual reality, if you will. Now notice this practice is different from baptism not just in terms of well no one's getting wet at least they shouldn't be and we're eating but notice the frequency is different Communion is repeated the rock continually followed them they continually came to 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 drink of that well or baptism they went through the Red Sea once well just as baptism is once communion is Repeated. We see from Jesus' words that He doesn't actually tell us how often. He just says, do this as often in remembrance of Me. However, we have other passages like Paul, even here in 1 Corinthians 11, who who puts the context of the Lord's Supper as when you gather together, which seems to suggest that they did it on the Lord's Day when they gathered. For these reasons, churches have practiced the Lord's Supper weekly, monthly, and quarterly. There's a reason that throughout church history there hasn't actually been a monolithic position because the Scriptures aren't explicitly clear. But here's what I do think they're clear about. It's to be regular. It's to be often. And I would venture to guess, I, I, I think... Most Baptists don't want to do it regularly because they do not understand it. And they don't see its significance. They think the regularity brings staleness. Well, it only brings staleness if you don't know what you're doing. And so we this church used to do it quarterly. We moved it to monthly. And I would say that this question on frequency is the number one question your pastors receive. Some of you are like, yeah, yeah, we been waiting for this. Some of you have even said that to me. Hey, I saw in that two sermons ago it concluded with a meal. Let the reader have ears to hear. But we're not going to be dogmatic about that. But here's what I do want to press us: if you know what this means in its expression, and if you you understand how this serves your worship to commune, you'll say I, I want to do it often. I do want to do it regularly. None of you would say I, I don't enjoy having a meal with my family every week or every day, because it would get stale if I do. No, you do it as often as you can because you love them and you commune with them. Let me move on. Not only is our union with Christ visualized, but it visualizes our union with one another. Look in verse seventeen. Because there is one bread, that's a visualization that we don't identify with because we do the little chiclet cups, right? We, we, we do that. But, but, but typically there would be one bread, and there's a symbolism in the ceremony. Why? Because there's one body of Christ. Now, we were joking in our elder retreat this week. Rest assured that it all comes in one box, okay? It all comes in one box, one source, and we are one body as as Christ is one, okay? All come together when we come in communion. And here's what it represents when we do that. Not only our union with Christ vertically, but our union with one another horizontally. We come together both rich and poor, black and white, male and female, young and old, declaring together our allegiance to Jesus Christ, our King. And so this is why the Lord's Supper is actually connected to membership as well and discipline. The Lord's Supper is only for those who have passed through the waters of baptism. Membership. Furthermore, to be removed from the table is actually discipline. It's removal from membership. Because now, no longer can the body of Christ because of one's persistent sin and idolatry in whatever form it takes, can the church say that you can drink at the cup? You can sit at the table. Because you no longer identify with Christ by your actions. I want you to see this and and just go back two chapters to chapter 5. Look in verse 11. Now this is Paul talking about sexual morality and the life of the church in Corinth. All right. And I don't have time to unpack all this, but I want to make at least a mental connection for you. Paul says in verse 11 of chapter 5, because there is a man who has his father's wife. Just let that sit for a moment. He says, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Now notice, not even to eat with such a one. What's he talking about? We get a greater idea when we, we get to the next verse. For what have I had to do with judging outsiders? Meaning, I'm not talking about those outside the church. It's not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside, but we purge the evil person from among you. What does that look like? They're not welcome at the table. That's why, that's why we fence it. And actually, in, in throughout the history of the church, we were talking about this earlier. I don't think this would fly in our culture, but I'm not, I think we still do it principally. The Lord's Supper would be announced, date and time, when it would be. And before the Lord's Supper happened, the pastors of the churches would get together and they would come up with a list. <laughs> of those who have been disciplined, and they would make the list public. And then they, before they participated in the Lord's Supper, they would read one of these vice lists of Paul, no drunkard, no idolater, no greed, greedy one, or sexually immoral is welcome at the table. Very formal. Now you might be saying, goodness gracious, that, it's back to that authority thing that we don't like in our culture. But that's actually just something that's been lost in probably the last 50 to 100 years. The seriousness of the table. We just lost it. We lost a lot of these principles. We didn't see the significance of them. Now, we do the church discipline here. We do that more on a one-on-one basis, and we don't have a state church, so it's not like we got to keep up with the roles like they did. But I want you to see that this, this is how... The church has understood these things. So naturally, and my last two points are quicker, the continued frequency of the Lord's Supper also doesn't only visualize our identification with Christ, it's setting the parameters. Who's in? That's what it's doing. It's drawing a line in the sand saying, who's the people of God? Baptism's the initial one. Lord's Supper's the ongoing. You still have the team jersey. not only communicates our identification with Christ, but number two, our preservation with Christ. When God sent manna from heaven, and He opened up the streams of water from the rock, He was supplying their daily sustenance. This is why when, when Jim read from John 6, We hear Jesus, He's talking about the manna. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. He goes on to say, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood listen, abides in me and I in him. When we take the Lord's Supper it is us expressing our utter dependence upon Christ. It's expressing that. Food and drink are daily necessities, right? You've got to have it. And apart from them, you will die. But do you believe that apart from Christ, you will die? Do you believe that apart from daily communion with Him, weekly communion, and worship with Him, that you will die? Now, by God's grace, that doesn't mean we always do when we fail. But over time, if you starve yourself, you will die. And of course, he's talking spiritually here. Therefore, the Lord's Supper is a ceremony which actually causes us to remember and rightly appropriate our faith in Christ. To come to the table and not forsake the gathering together is an acknowledgement that, Lord, I cannot survive apart from you. It's one thing to say, I believe. I already said this, but I'll say it again. It's one thing to say, I believe in Jesus. But what does it communicate when you say, but I never have time to commune with him? I never have time to gather with his people. You know, the average church attendance amongst evangelicals is one out of four. I think it's a little bit higher here. But that's 25%. Who, who would say, you know, I'll I'll do one out of four weeks of Eden. No, no one does that. It shows our weakness of faith. It shows that we do not really think we need Him. I can do this on my own. But you know what the Lord's Supper says? You and I can't do this on our own. And we need to be remembered of that because when we walk out of these doors in about 20 minutes, we'll forget, won't we? We'll forget. That's why we need the regular reminder. Being committed to the corporate worship and the participation of the Lord's Supper is to express our utter dependence on Christ. When we come to the table, brothers and sisters, do you get the imagery here? We're to come repentant and hungry. Give me Jesus. I don't want the world. I want Jesus. I'm hungry for Him. I'm starving. It's been a week. I've heard Your voice. I've feasted on Your Word. I need You. Sometimes here, believers wrongly conclude that because they're struggling with sin, they shouldn't come to the table. I think that's a misunderstanding of examine yourselves. We don't come to the table when you're cleaned up. We come to the table and say, Jesus, clean me up. That's what we're doing. And when Paul tells the church in Corinth, examine yourself, what he's doing is he's saying have some self-awareness, not only about yourself, but the rest of the body. Don't come in here presuming pridefully that you got it all together. That's what he's really getting at. And it's showing itself up in some of their shenanigans. But it's not this idea, oh no, I'm so broken over my sin, I can't come to Jesus. I better fix this before I come to church. It's a humble, broken heart. It says, I'm a wretch, Lord. And yes, that will have its practical outcome if you're at odds with a brother and sister and you're living in sin. You're going to want to make that right. But I want to encourage some of you. Some of you are weighed down with guilt. And God's grace toward you has allowed you to be very sensitive to your sin. That's a good thing. It's a good spiritual nervous system in you. But don't come under the illusion that somehow you got to get it all fixed. Because nobody does. And if you think you did, then you haven't discerned yourself rightly. You haven't examined yourself well. We examine ourselves to come and see oh, yeah, there's much sin in me. The problem is when you come and you don't think there's much sin in you. That's the issue. So I want to invite you next week, we're taking the Lord's Supper. Come broken, helpless, and needy, confessing your sins saying, I need You, Jesus. I need Your grace because I will, I'm will. i famished on my own. Sinner, the table is for wretched sinners. And when we come to the table, we're not saying, I, I'm coming cleaned up. No, we're saying, I need Him to clean me up. I need Him. I need Him to preserve me. I'm famished. I cannot sustain myself. I need you, Jesus, to feed me because I have no bread of my own. I have no drink of my own. I have nothing of my own, but rather I must come to that fountain filled with blood that is drawn from Emmanuel's veins, brothers and sisters. And sinners who plunge themselves beneath that flood lose all their guilty state. That's the heart. I need you. I'm coming to this fountain that's ever flowing. It's the rock that followed Israel throughout the wilderness and it was supplying their every need. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we're saying, Jesus, preserve me because I need the Gospel every day, every week. Your grace must sustain me because apart from it, woe is me. Woe is me. Or as Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For what? They'll be satisfied. They'll be satisfied. So when it comes to the table, identifying ourselves with Christ, longing for His preserving grace, we also exalt His name. I mean, after that, can you not worship? I mean, you can't help but worship if you understand that, right? Right? It's just the natural response. And that is exactly what the Lord's Supper will do f- to us. Having, having this understanding of the significance of baptism in the Lord's Supper, Paul tells them, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. That's their lack of awareness. Coming to the table thinking they got nothing to repent of. No, 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 no. You must repent of that and come to the table. In other words, you cannot... Live in sin and truly worship Christ. Come, worship Christ. The table, therefore, draws us into Christ and summons us to forsake our sinful ways. That's what the table does. It's a proclamation of Christ's death until He returns. 1 Corinthians 11.26 So having received and appropriated Christ through the Lord's Supper, what do we do? We respond in worship. And one of the things that we've changed, I want you to see this in our, our order of service we've we've been trying to articulate these things in our service. Next Sunday when we do the Lord's Supper, we'll have a prayer of confession before it. Why? to examine ourselves, to see our need to come hungry, come thirsty and we'll partake in the Lord's Supper. We might even say the Apostles Creed To identify ourselves with the once for all, the faith handed down for the saints once and for all. And then once we go through the Lord's Supper, we'll conclude it with a prayer of thanksgiving and a song of praise. Why? Because that's the proper response. All the elements of the service are to lead us not only to think the right things, but to do the right things. And that and that action leads to habits and leads to affections that produces those things. You can sit on your couch all day long and say, I want to get fit. But if you just keep sitting on your couch all day and saying, I want to get fit, I want to get fit, I want to get fit, but you don't get up and start running, well, you aren't going to get fit. And the Lord, by His grace, has provided structures, pathways, training wheels for us because we're toddlers, we're infants. We'll we'll, we'll just go off on our own. We need the structure. And it leads us to worship. And when we come having been moved from confession and repentance to to knowing that our sins have been covered, that that fount has has washed us, that He has given us new garments with a new name. Oh, we can't help but then praise Him and give Him thanks and and rejoice that Christ is the one who's defeated our great foes. Just like Pharaoh and his army were washed out in the the waves and the water crushed upon them, so Satan was defeated when you came out of the waters of baptism. He has no more grip on you. Satan, sin and death, that serpent was smashed. And he's now under your feet and you have glory and and joy, not in what you have done, but what Christ has done for you as your new Moses who led you through those waters. Do you see that? And we respond in such a way and we say with the saints, He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and that He is the first and the last, the living one who died and behold lives forevermore having the keys of death and Hades in His hand. Not only does it draw our hearts in exaltation for what Christ has done, but it draws our hearts in anticipation for what He will do, right? Yes, these are just shadows. These are just things pointing of greater realities to come. And so when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we anticipate what the book of Revelation calls the great marriage feast of the Lamb. We're anticipating this. I sometimes like to say this is, this is the rehearsal dinner. This is the rehearsal dinner. We're waiting for the real thing. The reception. We look forward to the day when our faith will be made sight And we will cry out with the great multitude. And this cry, the book of Revelation says, will sound like a roar of many waters. And it will sound like the mighty peals of the thunder as all the redeemed say, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory. For, why? The marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Next Sunday, brothers and sisters, is the fourth Sunday of the month. You know what the significance of that is? Here at our church, that's that's Lord's Supper Day. So if you don't know that, fourth Sunday a month is always Lord's Supper Day. And we do it... One reason it's always on the same day is so that you can be prepared. You know when it's coming. We're going to gather together to participate and and, and express visually our faith in the true realities of what these elements, these symbols represent. And so in preparation for next week, here, here are three questions that I want to exhort you to ask yourself in preparation. Three questions based on the sermon today. Number one, Have I identified with Christ by faith through believer's baptism? That means after I trusted Jesus, have I been baptized? And does Christ's church identify with me? Does anybody else agree that I've identified with Christ, in other words? Do I, number two, depend on Christ to preserve me from temptation and sin by grace through faith? Number three, do I exalt Christ in worship, giving thanks and praise by faith? I want you to ask those three questions. You can keep those up on the board for a little bit and maybe you can write them. But if you can answer these questions, it's your great duty, but also your great blessing to be here next week at the table. However, if you answer no to any of those questions, or you're unsure how to answer some of those questions, I plead with you not to leave here today without talking to, to myself or one of the other pastors. Say, I, I need to know, I need assurance that I'm identified with Christ. I need, to, I, need to, I need you to help me understand what it looks like to be dependent upon Him. I need you to help us, help me know how to worship Him. Come talk to us. Maybe you're a child who's been here for some time and you've been asking lots of questions. This is the first step. This is where you you move forward. And you say, "I, I want to trust Jesus. Well, this is what it looks like. Come. Come to Jesus and follow Him and He will give you eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, press these truths into our heart. Lord, where these things have maybe not been previously known, or we have just forgotten, or keep your tr- your gospel truth on the forefront of our mind. Lord, help us answer those questions. Do do I identify with you? Have I identified with You in baptism? Have I, Do I walk in utter dependence upon You because my heart is so easily led astray? And do I want to exalt You and worship You forever and ever? Lord, I pray that Your Spirit would work in us and, and Lord, those of us You've given new hearts, Lord, that You would cause them to overflow with living water. But Lord, if there's anyone here today who whose heart is still heart of stone, may you may you melt it down. May you break that hard heart of stone. May you till the soil of that rocky ground. And that the seeds of the gospel would plant and they would germinate. And Lord, they would be watered and and that you would give the growth and they would become a part of us. Lord, that's our prayer, not only for those who are here in our midst, but as we go out and we want to share the gospel with a hundred people. Lord, I pray that we not only be faithful to declare that good news, but Lord, that you would be faithful to give us a harvest to reap from. That we would see the waters of the baptistry stirred. And that we would have more brothers and sisters who were previously enslaved now free at the table. Lord, that's our prayer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.